In the musical Man of La Mancha, Miguel de Cervantes, while in prison awaiting trial during the Spanish Inquisition, tells his fellow inmates the heroic story of Don Quixote. Well, actually, he, he tells the story of a country squire by the name of Alonzo Quiana, who believes that he's the valiant knight Don Quixote. Some would say he's just a crazy old man, and others would say he just sees things differently than most people. When he came upon a windmill, windmill, there's, there's my southern accent. When he came upon a windmill, he sees a giant that needs slaying. When he comes upon a dilapidated inn, he sees a regal castle. When he meets a kitchen maid and a prostitute named Eldonza, he sees the most beautiful fair maiden, Dulcinea, a woman that he would give his life for. And he sings about it. Dulcinea. And I won't, I won't, I'm not going to sing for y'all because I do that too much. Um, and I promise I won't sing The Impossible Dream, even though I really, I really want to because that's such a good song. But I'm not going to do that. Uh, but there's this great speech at the end of Act One where Miguel um, de Cervantes defends the character of Alonzo Quiana by making the case that he, in fact, is not crazy. He says this. I have lived nearly 50 years, and I have seen life as it is. Pain, misery, hunger, cruelty beyond belief. I have heard the singing from taverns and the moans from the bundles of filth on the streets. I have, held, um, I have been a soldier and seen my comrades fall in battle. I have held them in my arms in their final moment. These were men who saw life as it was. Yet they died despairing. No glory, no gallant last words, only their eyes filled with confusion, whimpering the question, why? I do not think they asked why they were dying, but why they had lived. When life itself seems lunatic, who knows where madness lies? Perhaps to be too practical is madness. To surrender dreams, this may be madness. To seek treasure where there is only trash. Too much sanity may be madness. And madness, maddest of all, to see life as it is and not as it should be. How do you see life? How do you see the world? How do you see yourself and others? How you see life and the world, how you see yourself and others, that affects what you think about as you ponder what it is you were put here to do. Now we've been in this series for the last several weeks as a church and, and I, to, the, to the campuses, to Waterford and Lake Mary and to the men and women at 33rd. I hope that, that we all, as we've looked at the story of God, begun to see how our story fits into God's greater story. And that we've all begun to discern what it is that we were put here to do. By way of review, in case you missed a week, uh, let's go through some of the things we know about our story if we are part of God's story. First, we know that we are all, 
every single one of us, a well-written, intentional story authored by the greatest author of all time and even before time and after time. And we know that our author at his core is love. So that means at the core of every one of our stories is love. That means our purpose, what we were put here to do is rooted in love. We also know that we're image bearers, that we're created in God's image and that we're given tasks that actually matter. That we've been called to cultivate and cultivate and create what God already started in creation, that our work actually matters. And we also know that all the brokenness, every bit of brokenness and sin and evil and suffering in the world is the result of believing a lie. Every sin begins with believing a lie. And so now, as people of the truth, as people who have encountered the the way, the truth, and the light in Jesus Christ, we know that it's our mission to defeat that lie to obliterate it, to expose it whenever we can. Whenever we see someone believing the lie, we are called to fight it with the truth of the gospel, the truth that says that we are loved unconditionally by God and that he has our best in mind because that was the lie. The lie is that God can't be trusted and that God doesn't love me. So we know that our purpose is intentional And we know that it's rooted in love. We know that we're called to cultivate and create. We know that we have a mission to obliterate the lie. But what does that mean for us specifically? Like, what does it mean for me? And what does it mean for you? How do we specifically know what it is that we're called to do? By being with God. There's no shortcut. There's no easy answer. We will only come to discover who we truly are through a deeper commitment and relationship with him. In verse one of of this chapter that we just heard read of chapter 17 of Genesis, God tells Abraham, he says, walk before me. Now, this is a very rich metaphor in the Bible. It's already been used several times in the book of Genesis. It's used to describe Adam and Eve's relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. It's used in reference uh, to Enoch. If you don't remember who Enoch is, Enoch was the man who lived 365 years and then he didn't die. God just took him up to heaven. That's one of two men who never died, Enoch and Elijah. So next time you're at a party and you would pull out some cool Bible trivia... You're welcome. Um, And then it's also, that phrase is also used in talking about Noah's relationship with God. And what this metaphor paints a picture of, it, it paints a picture of us treading the same path as someone else. In other words, it means that we're to do as God does, to live in righteousness, holiness, faithfulness. However God says life works best, live that way. So it essentially means to obey. When God says, Abraham, walk before me, he's saying, obey. If you want to know your purpose and you aren't placing yourself under the authority of God's word, if you're not striving to live in accordance with God's design for you, if you're not trying to obey, it's going to be hard to know your purpose because part of your purpose, a huge part of your purpose is to live out the way God designed you to live. If you're sleeping with someone who isn't your spouse, if you're stealing from work, if you're holding on to bitterness against someone, that is going against your design. That isn't, that isn't what God intended for you. So to walk before him means to strive to follow his footsteps, to follow the path that he's laid out, to obey him. 
But this image also evokes an image of relationship. To walk before means to be in God's presence, to be where he is, to be conversing with him, to be able to relate to him. If you aren't praying, if you aren't opening yourself up to hear from God through prayer, you probably won't hear from him. I mean, with a lot of people who want to talk about feeling like they don't really have direction in life or they don't know their purpose. And as we begin talking, it, it usually becomes apparent that they are knowingly living in a way that's apart from what God designed for them. And, 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 just, and just being obedient, the minute you make steps of obedience, all of a sudden you're going to have a greater sense of purpose because that's what you were designed for. And then as we talk too, a lot of times they say, yeah, I hadn't, hadn't really been praying that much and I don't really know where to read in the Bible because I, I get in there and then I, I kind of get bored or distracted and I don't really know how to read my Bible. But you see, that's the primary way God communicates with us. He uses other people. He uses church. He uses what happens here. But the primary way he speaks to us, the primary way he shows us what he made us for, the primary way he shows us that he loves us is through his word. So if you're not reading his word and you're not praying and you're not asking him to be with you and, and talking with him, you're probably going to feel like you don't have much purpose. And this idea of walking before him also implies a process. It evokes the, the idea of a pilgrimage or a journey. See, Abraham is not just called to obey God or just relate to God, but he's also called to grow in God, to go on a journey with him, to know that it's, it's not going to just happen tomorrow, that this is, this is a lifelong process. One commentator said, there can be no once for all formula for instant holiness because life's circumstances and demands keep changing, just like that of different phases of a journey. I don't know about y'all, but this is a very frustrating truth for me because I just want the answer. I just want to know what I'm supposed to do. I want to know what will make me feel happy and what I know will be good for other people. Like I just, just, God, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But you see me, and like many of you probably, we're constantly seeking relief, but God is constantly seeking dependence. Man seeks relief, but God seeks dependence. We want the answer. We want the solution to our hopelessness or our purposelessness, but God wants us. He wants to hang with us. He wants to be in relationship with us. He wants us to constantly be depending on him each and every day. I believe the reason God put the tree in the garden was not to tempt Adam and Eve. In fact, I know it wasn't to tempt them because James 1.13 says this, let no one when he is tempted say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So God didn't put that tree, that forbidden fruit in the garden as a temptation for Adam and Eve, but why did he put it there? Well, I believe to keep his creatures dependent on him, to continually give them the choice to trust him because that's how he designed us. He designed us to daily depend on him. Man seeks relief, but God seeks dependence. If we become self-sufficient, which was the promise of the serpent, remember he said, if you disobey God, if you eat that fruit, then you will be like God. See, if we become like God, we won't need him anymore. We were designed before the fall 
to need God. That isn't a result of the fall. We don't need God now because sin has entered the the story. We've always needed God. That is actually how we were designed. Self-sufficiency was never the goal, nor will it ever be the goal in the story of God. The goal is daily dependence. It's relationship. It's being with God. So if you want to know your purpose, there's no shortcut. No one's going to be able to just tell you, do this and do this. They'll just say, be with God. And there's a number of ways that you can be with God, like I just said, by reading his word, by being in community, by praying, but that's it. It's a process. It's a lifelong journey of being with him. So God says to Abraham, he says, all right, walk with me. And then he says, and be blameless. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, how in the world can anyone be blameless? Well, the Hebrew root for the word blameless is actually the word whole to be completely integrated. So to be blameless is not so much about perfection or performance, but being wholehearted. To be fully devoted to God, to trust God, to have an able-like heart towards God that freely gives to him. Okay, so that's enough about us. All right, that's the part. All right, that you wanna know how to find your purpose, that's what you gotta do. But now let's talk about um, what we can expect from God as we walk before him, and as we wholeheartedly trust him. This is what we can expect from him. We can expect God to remind us who he is. First, the very first thing God does in this story is he reminds Abraham that he is God Almighty. It's actually the word El Shaddai, which is a a powerful picture of God, that he's a God who can redeem anything for his purpose. Now, this is interesting because if you know the story of Abraham, if, you, if we were just to actually read through the story of Abraham, we see that Abraham, the man of faith, the man whom all, all of Christianity is built on, on his faith, that was where it, it kind of started, that this man had a ton of doubts and then he messed up a whole lot. If you go back to Genesis 12, you see where God comes to Abraham and he says, all right, Abraham, I want you to go into this land. I'm gonna give over this land to you. And I know there are people who live there now, but it's yours. I am God, I'm gonna give you this land. So just trust me, pack up everything and go to this land. So then chapter 13, Abraham and his family uh, pack it up and his servants and all his belongings and they start making this journey to the land that God had promised them. But as they're going through Egypt, Pharaoh sees Abraham's wife and finds her attractive. And Abraham gets scared. He gets scared that, oh no, if he knows that I'm married to her, he'll probably kill me so that he can have her. And so he lies and he says, well, she's my sister. Not only that, he lets her go up to his bedchambers. And then in chapter 15, God comes back to him and he says, hey, Abraham, I'm gonna make your descendants more numerous than the stars. Just trust me. Well, Abraham's getting old and his wife's getting old and his wife has not been able to bear a child up until this point. And so Abraham doesn't know how God's gonna do that. So what does he do? He sleeps with his wife's servant. And so here in chapter 17, God's coming back to Abraham again and he's reminding Abraham, hey, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. There is nothing that I'm not capable of. I can redeem anything. But you see, in Abraham, we see our struggle, the struggle between our condition and our calling. 
between seeing things as they are and seeing things as they should be. See, you and I, we look around at at, at the condition around us, and a lot of times it's hard to trust our calling. It's hard to trust that, that we can even make a difference. It's hard to even sometimes see where God is working. And some of us need to be reminded of that. Some of us need to be reminded that the God we serve is God Almighty El Shaddai. Last week, I had the privilege of going into the 33rd Street Jail campus uh, and preaching live to the men there. And hey, guys, um, wish I was with you today. Um, and, and I loved it. I always love going in there. Um, and I love worshiping with these guys. I mean, these guys just, I mean, they worship. And, uh, and, and I was in there, and we were worshiping, and then I got up to, to do my little sermon, and um, and as I started to do the sermon, on their back wall, on a, on a blackboard, they had the passage written out um, from Acts where there's uh, an earthquake, where there's an earthquake and then all the prison doors fling open and all the prisoners are set free. Um, and that's, that's, that someone had written that on the back blackboard. And as I started to preach, I had to stop. I was so distracted by the verse that I was reading because I, I realized that I had just started the sermon without really being reminded of the fact that the God that I'm going to be talking about and the God who I believe speaks through the preaching of his word is the one who can cause an earthquake and set men free. And so I stopped and I said, guys, you see that verse back there? Do you believe that? Do you believe the God that we're worshiping is God Almighty, that he's God El Shaddai? How often do we come into church forgetting that we're seeking the presence of an almighty God. That we're worshiping a God who really can redeem anything. One of my favorite verses is Acts 4:31 where it says when they finished praying the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. I want that every week. I want us to experience that every week in this place. But how often do we actually expect it to happen? So when we walk before God wholeheartedly, we can expect him to remind us who he is. That he's God Almighty, that he's El Shaddai, that he can redeem anything. And I know some of us walk into church really broken and in situations that we just think there's no way God can redeem this. No He can. He's God Almighty. Second, we can expect him to give us a new name. Or maybe better said, tell us our true name. I just spoke about this at Regroup this uh, past week, which Regroup is our recovery ministry. And and I can't recommend it enough (laughs) because I think it's so important. I think it's one of the most important things we do as a church. Um, and if you want to meet some of the bravest men and women in our church, you, sh- you should come to Regroup. Um, and Regroup isn't just for alcoholics or sex addicts. Um, it's really helpful for any of us. Any of us who want to truthfully look at our story and be able to see where we're seeking relief instead of dependence. But this week, I was given um, the topic of, of names, Uh, of the power of names. And and I talked about how most of us are living out of a name that was given to us probably in our childhood and probably a name that wasn't spoken in love. 
Um, because I was called a girl when I was seven years old by some boys who didn't want to let me play because I wasn't good enough or strong enough or athletic enough, um, I really have lived out of that name most of my life. I remember that, that day particularly. I remember how I felt. I remember how I felt so weak and judged. And from that moment on, I said, I'm going to live my life differently. I thought, I'm never going to feel like this again. So I'm only going to do things that I know I can be the best at because I never want anyone to tell me that I'm not good enough or that I'm too weak. And so most of my life I've lived out of that name, which has greatly limited what activities I can participate in. I've talked about this article before um, because it was a fascinating article to me, but there was an article a number of years ago that came out, CNN put it out, and it said that we have emasculated men with porn and video games. And when it came out, I was a youth pastor, and I thought, like, that's great. That's going to be great. I mean, I've used it a lot. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized, like, that isn't, that isn't what's emasculated men. It's the names that we were called as kids that have led us to those things. Because somewhere, and most, I bet every man in this room can remember a time that they were told they didn't have what it takes, or they weren't man enough. And if you're living under that name, of course you're going to pursue a girl who can't say no, and you're going to fight an enemy who can't draw blood. I've also told this story before too, uh, but I'm going to tell it again because I think that some of you women in here are living out this story. You are this girl. But I was a youth pastor for six, almost seven years, um, and, and every year there would be a freshman girl who would come into the youth group, and I could tell that she was innocent, uh, but I also could tell that she really wanted to be loved. She really wanted to be accepted. She really wanted a guy to tell her that she was beautiful and she, she was wanted. Um, and usually about halfway through that freshman year, she would have either made a bad choice or someone would have taken advantage of her. And then for the next three and a half years, I would see her live out the name that she had been given. You see, we live out whatever name we believe is most true about us. What name do you believe is most true about you? There was a study done at Bowling Green State University where they went into a middle school. They went into an eighth grade math class. And for an entire semester, they told the top 5% of students in the math class that they were actually the bottom 5% and they needed to get their grades up. And they told the bottom 5% that they were the top 5% of the class. And at the end of the semester, these were the results. Those who were actually in the top 5% but were told that they were in the bottom 5 and they needed to, to do better, their, their test scores stayed static. There wasn't really any improvement. But those students that were in the bottom 5%, their test scores improved tremendously. See, parents, we need to remember that. Like, what names are you giving your kid? We live out whatever name we believe is most true about us. But we also, how we see ourselves in the future is how we behave today. So the kid that's out there playing basketball in the summer in 97 degree weather, he's doing that because he sees himself on the team in October. So what happens, what we can expect from God as we walk before him wholeheartedly is we can expect him to tell us our true name, which will change the way we see ourselves. 
Did you hear God say to Abram? He said, Abram, your name will now be Abraham. And then he paints him a picture of what that name means. He says, you will be the father of a multitude of nations. He says, there will be many kings that will come from you. I mean, what a vision. That is the future that God places on Abraham. How do you see yourself in the future? Is it been shaped by your relationship with God or has it been shaped by the American dream or by parents' expectations or, or by some celebrity? See, as we walk before God wholeheartedly, we can expect him to tell us our true name and for that to change how we see ourselves. I, I try every day, I, I try, I don't, but I try every day to pray that I would see Kelly, my wife, and my kids, and really anyone I come in contact with, including myself, that I would see them and me as God sees us. Imagine if we all did that. Imagine if everyone that calls Summit Church their home. And it's, it's not a small number. Like if we all did that, we would significantly, significantly impact our city. Think about how many interactions you've had just this week. What if every interaction you had with someone, you prayed and said, God, give me eyes to see them as you see them. I mean, from the, from the boss at work, from the guy who's checking you out at the grocery store to the, the woman who's ringing the bell for Salvation Army already at the grocery store. Like what, what if each and every one of us, like that was our prayer. I believe that we would truly change our city because we would be speaking so much vision over people. How one sees themselves in the future is how they will behave today. God speaks vision over Abraham and he says, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. There's also something else we can expect from God. We can expect that he will do it. Do you notice how many times it says, I will? Look back at your bulletin. Look how many times, it's just, I will, I will, I will, over and over again. God is looking at Abraham and he's saying, with or without you, I will do this. But I'm inviting you to be part of this with me. All you have to do is show up. Do you remember the Andy Griffith show? It's an old show, but I, I mean, I, I wasn't alive when it was like really on. But like as a kid, I used to watch it after school. Um, and as Ellen DeGeneres has once pointed out, like nothing happens on that show. If you've got time to whistle, there's nothing going on in the show. And she's right. Actually, nothing happened on that show. But what made that show intriguing or interesting was Barney Fife. Because he was the second in command to the police chief, uh, Andy. And see, Barney believed that Mayberry depended on him. And so most of the comedy or the drama in the show came from Barney's heightened sense of importance. But what did Andy do? Andy just kept showing up. Now, this might like I'm saying, you don't matter. Well, I kind of am. Which I know, like, I don't know that I can say that and still work at Summit. But it's true. God doesn't need you or me. 
And I try to remember, every time I get up here to preach, I try to remember, you know what? When God wanted to speak, one time he used an ass. Remember Balaam's donkey? He had Balaam's donkey speak God's word in Numbers 22. That's very humbling. He doesn't need me and he doesn't need you. But because he doesn't need us, when he calls us to something, when he calls you to something, it means he wants you. It means he wants to be in something with you. He wants to use you for something significant that has an eternal impact. See, the beauty comes not from being needed, but being wanted. That's hard for a codependent to wrap their head around, but it's true. The beauty doesn't come from being needed, but from being wanted. My dad owns a tile a commercial tile contracting business. I've told you all that before. And from the time I was about 12 or 13, I would spend my summers working for him. And I know my dad, he, you know, he, he wanted to teach me responsibility and he didn't want to raise a lazy boy. But I also think he just wanted to be with me. I know that I wasn't the most efficient worker. And I know that probably some things took way longer than they needed to. But my dad invited me to be a part of something because he wanted to be with me and because he wanted to have someone to eat lunch with him at the Pizza Hut buffet. But God is a lot like my dad. He invites us into something that he could accomplish on his own just because he wants to be with us. God calls us not out of need, but out of love for us. The beauty comes not in being needed, but in being, want, being wanted. And lastly, as we walk before God wholeheartedly, we can expect that God will use us for the sake of others, that our impact will be so much greater than anything we might ever see, but it'll be there. I mean, as God is talking to Abraham, he's talking about generations. He's saying, I will be their God. This is an everlasting covenant. God tells Abraham that I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing for all nations. One of our value statements here at Summit is that, that we want to be people who are being transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. So whatever God is calling us to, we know he promises us that it is a call much greater than us, that it's an everlasting call and that he is going to use us not because he needs to, but because he wants to, because he loves us to bless all others. Now, this would be a perfect time to sing the impossible dream, but I'm not going to. But I want you to hear some of these lyrics and you'll know why I want to sing it. To right the unrightable wrong, to run, when the brave, to run where brave men dare not go, to march into hell for a heavenly cause, I'll end with this. At the end of Man of La Mancha, Alonzo Kiana is dying and he's forgotten that he ever once believed he was the great valiant knight Don Quixote. And that kitchen maid, that prostitute Aldonza hears of his death and she rushes to his bedside and he sees her and he doesn't remember her. So she begins to tell her the story. And then she says this to him. She says, you spoke to me and everything was different. You looked at me and called me by another name, Dulcinea. Everything was different for this poor kitchen maid 
because a crazy old man called her by another name. We have been called by another name by God Almighty, El Shaddai. So what's different? As my mentor Steve Brown always ends his sermons, you think about that. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you uh, that we are invited into this story, um, not because you need us, not because we have to perform at a certain level. You just want to be with us. And you want to shape us and you want to make us more into who you, who you thought of when you thought us up. You, you want to transform us into people that will have an eternal impact on this world. And so, Father, I pray uh, that as we go uh, from this place, especially if some of us still feel like, I don't, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do, uh, that by your Spirit you would draw us to, to seek you out, to seek you out in prayer. And I just trust, God, that you will speak to each of us, that if we ask, you will begin to show us what our true name is. And Father, I pray as people who believe who we really are, that you will use us to impact our city and this world for the sake of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.